You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. My name is Peter Maravellis, and on behalf of City Lights booksellers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the shelter in place. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, forums throughout the fall season. So we're happy to announce that City Lights has actually reopened its doors to the public. Uh, in case you don't know, um, following San Francisco Health Department guidelines, we aim to make your visit as safe as possible. Please do come down and visit us. Uh, you'll be able to once again browse our stacks. Our business hours are seven days a week from 12 noon to 8 p.m. Uh, so we've worked very hard to transform the store for the age of COVID. The entrance is now on the Broadway side of the building. It's 271 Columbus, and the original entrance is an exit only. So we encourage everyone, please do wear facial covering while visiting. We're trying to make all of our efforts to keep safe uh, everyone. So as many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish in the grand tradition of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's seminal Pocket Poets series. Continue to produce on a seasonal basis, new books of poetry, fiction, literature, and so on and so forth. We have new titles coming out from David Barsamian, from Stan Cox, a very timely book from uh, Alan Hirsch about our current electoral crisis, and also new books from the 21st uh, Poet Laureate of the United States, Juan Felipe Pereira, as well as new poetry. So if you want to learn more about the books we publish, as well as the books that we carry, um, you can come up to our website, www.citylights.com. You can also keep an eye on our social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. We're on it. So I'd like to welcome you all to Lonely Arts Club Band, a celebration of Zoetrope All Stories Fall 2020 issue. Uh, founded by Francis Ford Coppola in 1997, Zoetrope All Story is an award-winning quarterly print magazine of short fiction, one-act plays, photography, art, essays, and so on. It is amongst one of the most celebrated literary periodicals in the world, and essentially kind of a meeting place where literature, film, and the arts all intersect. Uh, they've had such writers grace their pages as Margaret Atwood, Colin McCann, Daniel Alarcon, Ha Jin, Haruki Murakami, and the list goes on and on. And they do this wonderful thing where they have this tradition of inviting guest editors to design each issue. So they've had everyone from Agnes Varda to David Lynch, P.J. Harvey to Gus Van Sant, even Lawrence Ferlinghetti himself had a crack at it, had an honor of working on an issue. So we're very lucky indeed to have them as neighbors. Zoetrope HQ is located just down the street from City Lights. So tonight takes on a very special meaning as we enjoy this very neighborly celebration. So uh, just to remind you, we're gonna be posting links if you wanna purchase copies of the new issue. So please keep your eye on the chat function that is easily activated by the dashboard on the lower part of your screen. Um, you can also use it to post comments and we're gonna use it for uh, the Q&A at the end. So uh, please do make your little statements and comments and uh, kind words. So the current issue has been designed by filmmaker Kelly Reichardt. And uh, we're really very, very honored to have with us tonight three of the contributors of the current issue. Francis DePonte Peebles, Patrick Dacey, and Daniel Orozco. Uh, we also have with us managing editor Manuela Martin. And to get the program started, I'd like to welcome editor in chief of Zoetrope All Story, our very dear friend, Michael Ray. Welcome to City Lights Live. 
Thank you so much, Peter. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and to see all these faces. I keep seeing like a bunch of friends I haven't seen in a long time, kind of scrolling across the bottom. So if I get a little distracted, I apologize, but I'll keep my focus and professionalism. Um, but my name is Michael Ray. I'm the editor of Zootrope Ball Story. I'm presently away from our headquarters in San Francisco, uh, quarantined at my in-laws place in Memphis. And I am so supre supremely thrilled uh, to welcome what seems to be millions of you, I do feel like there are probably a million celebrants out there with us tonight, um, to the virtual release FET for the fall 2020 edition of the magazine, which was designed by Kelly Reichert. I have my copy here. It is supremely, super lovely. Um, I'm uh, doubly thrilled to introduce my colleague, the magazine's managing editor, uh, Manjula Martin. Uh, who's zooming in from the Redwoods in Camp Meeker, California. Hi, Em. Say hi to everyone hi. out there. It's so great to be here. Thank you, Michael. Um, thank you, Peter. We miss the store and miss the neighborhood so much. Yeah, um, that's true. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna introduce everyone else first great. before we turn to, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm triply thrilled to welcome our contributors to the edition, uh, the illuminating Francis de Pontes Peoples in Chicago. Uh, the Relevatory, uh, Patrick Dacey in Newport News, Virginia. Hi, everybody. And uh, the man uh, in the happiest shirt tonight and also earning my vote is the friendliest person in Idaho with apologies to Tony Dorr, Daniel Roscoe in Moscow, Idaho. Hello, Daniel. Thank you. Hello, Michael. Um, and our uh, designer, uh, the acclaimed filmmaker Kelly Reichert would be with us too, were it not for her own Zoom overload as she's teaching this semester at Bard in the Hudson Valley while I hold up in her apartment in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so I was, I was uh, mentioning earlier that we're representing, uh, I guess, almost every um, uh, uh, time zone on the, in the contiguous US today. Um, and, uh, so, uh, but Manjula, can you tell us a bit about uh, Kelly's design of the issue and how the two of you went from like-minded strangers to BFFs forever? Absolutely. Um, as Peter mentioned, you know, we're not just a literary magazine. Zotrope is also an art magazine. Um, for each edition of the magazine, we invite a prominent artist to be our guest designer. Uh, which means they contribute the imagery for the entire issue. It also means they oversee the whole look and the feel of the edition. As subscribers know, um, every issue looks a little bit different. And as a print only publication, we consider that to be um, one of the special things that we're doing. And it's, it's important to us that we're creating sort of like an art object in addition to really amazing stories. Um, so we were fortunate to work with Kelly Reichert on this issue. For those of you not familiar with her films, she is um, one of the most amazing, innovative, independent filmmakers working today. Um, her films include Night Moves, Meek's Cutoff, Windy and Lucy, Old Joy, and most recently, First Cow, which premiered at the New York Film Festival this spring, just on the cusp of the pandemic. Um, so when we reached out to Kelly we, to invite her to design the magazine, we sort of assumed that she might contribute photography or stills from the sets of her films, the types of things that other filmmakers have contributed in the past. Um, but she really surprised me by saying, oh, hey, you know, uh, I have these drawings. Do you guys want to look at them? And she sent me this folder of amazing, vivid, lovely colored pencil portraits 
Um, and these are what ended up in the issue and they've, they're, they're works that she's never shown publicly before. Um, I'm just gonna hold this up. I don't know if folks can see it. Here's the cover. And some of these portraits are just really amazing. Apologies for the light glare. What Kelly has done is, and in the magazine, there's an introductory essay in which she sort of explains all this. Um, but basically she was on press tour for First Cow in March. And the word that the shelter in place was happening came down and they canceled the press tour and sent her home to Portland, Oregon, where she lives. Um, she was out sort of doing the pandemic panic grocery shopping um, before the shelter in place. And she happened to sort of on a whim stop by an art supply store and picked up some colored pencil, pencils and a bunch of tracing paper. And she just started drawing and tracing photographs and pictures from magazines and art books. Wasn't something she'd ever really done before. Um, and a lot of images of her friends and family and sort of her community during this very remarkable time that then quickly evolved into the Black Lives Matter protests in Oregon. And she sort of managed to capture all these amazing, really intimate snapshots um, in her lovely sort of illustrated way. Um, the artwork itself is gorgeous, as is the design. Um, Kelly, you know, is a filmmaker. She has an impeccable sense of artistry and we're very grateful to her for, you know, the way the issue came together and for allowing us to showcase these amazing personal images. Um, I think these drawings are a really stunning example of how, you know, creative artists can be under very unusual circumstances and find ways to keep making art. Um, Kelly herself was out of work. She's both a teacher and a filmmaker um, during the initial phases of the lockdown. Um, and so many artists of all types have been put out of work by this pandemic. And many of them have found surprising new ways to keep making art. Like if you're an acclaimed filmmaker and you suddenly take up drawing with colored pencils. Um, so I encourage you all to order a copy of the magazine so you can hold it in your hands and look at Kelly's amazing artwork. Um, as Michael mentioned, she couldn't be here tonight. Um, and I also just have to say, if you're not familiar with her films, please seek them out. She is a true genius of the genre. Um, so I'll turn it back to Michael and the other literary geniuses who are in the magazine. Thanks, Mondulin. Yeah, as it happens, that was one of the first stops canceled on Kelly's press tour. I think she was in Cambridge at the uh, uh, Harvard Film Archive at the time, and she was supposed to come to San Francisco. I was gonna interview her at the Roxy Theater and uh, just uh, it did not happen. Um, but let's turn to the stories. Uh, so we're gonna move through the issue in the way, uh, in, the, in the order that, that they appear. Uh, so first we're gonna go to Frances de Pontes Peebles. Um, this is Frances's fourth story that we've been so supreme, supremely fortunate to publish. Um, the earlier three are really among the apex ever to appear in our pages. I, Francis is always someone when people say, whom should I be reading? I say, Francis and Mandela can attest to this. Um, it, her work is, I mean, you'll see tonight. It's just, it's incredible. Um, so the first was back in, was 15 years ago in uh, the winter of 2005, the disappearance of Luisa Porto, which appeared in that winter 2005 edition that was designed by the musician and actor, Tom Waits. Uh, then in the spring 2011 release that was designed by the filmmaker Mark Romanek, uh, we published uh, Francis's story, The Sarambi Case, which is, 
I mean, again, I'm just becoming sort of redundant, but it, I mean, it's like a Terrence Malick film and short story. It's incredible. Um, and then uh, The Crossing, which is one is a just a completely eviscerating story, um, which was in our winter 2014 2015 issue about a young woman making her way across the US Mexico border. Um, that was designed by the musician Bill Callahan. I mean, all three are just incredible. Um, so Francis's story in this edition is called Girls of the Immortal Garden. It leads the issue. And Francis, will you kick us off? Thank you so much, Michael. That makes me feel so just incredible. And I, I love um, being in Zoetrope and it's just such a, um, it's really special that my stories can have their home in this magazine, which is just, just an amazing place to be. So thank you so much. Um, okay, so I'm not gonna give too many explanations. I'm just gonna jump right into reading a little bit of the story and hopefully um, just hearing it, everyone will kind of understand um, what's going on. Um, and thank you to everyone who's joining us tonight. I really appreciate you being here. Um, okay, so Girls of the Immortal Garden. Joanna Diachki created 1971. I am his first. Because of this, he regards me with nostalgia and disdain. I'm evidence of his youthful drive and its clumsiness. I'm proof of his evolution. He has advanced while I have stayed exactly the same. I have vague memories of being shapeless, a lump of clay without vision or sense. He molded me under his hands, so large and smooth skin back then, not the withered talons they are today, holding tight to a cane as he shuffles back and forth from the immortal garden to the indoor gallery, ignoring me, though I hold a place of honor, a pedestal at the museum's entrance where every paying guest and reporter and artistic ingenue must reckon with me face to face. I'm not his best. There are others here who are finer specimens, more complex, more illustrative of his devastating talent, but I've earned my place at the front. When he made me, he already considered himself old, a man in his forties playing at creation, a rebel son who took up art instead of business, returning reluctantly from decades studying art abroad to his birth city, a backwater among backwaters as he called it, the swamp where he'd been relegated to rot. But in this swamp was money, his father's, and an abandoned tile factory, his grandfather's, and clay, so rich and pure that only the highest temperatures can harden it to near stone. Slowly, he pieced me together, first a pillar, then a chest, a neck, and a face, blank. I felt his breath hot on the cheek that he'd formed. Delicately, with the tips of his fingers, he gave me ears. I could hear the morning calls of birds, the frantic scuttling of lizards, Midday was quiet, except for the echoes of his steps in the vast space. He shaped me a nose and I could smell the smoke of his cigarettes and behind it, my own scent of earth and metal. My eyes were carved with a sharp pointed tool. And then I saw him, his face kissing distance away. His black hair rose in a wave from his forehead. His features were all hard angles and rigid lines. 
except for his lips, as soft and curved as the clay he rolled between his fingers, and his eyes, so dark and shining, they appeared painted and glazed, focused on me with rapt attention. Being seen like this, one comes to life. I was not made in a day. He struggled with me. At first, there was a rush of naive confidence. There was music and laughter. I was admired. In his atelier, ancient-looking mirrors, their gilding peeling and stained, were propped against every wall and table so that he could see me from all angles. I, in turn, could see my own transformation. My nose was smashed and remade. My long hair was replaced by a spiked helmet. I had a shield and then bare breasts and then a shield again. Once he held my face in his hands and looked at me with such rapture, such tenderness, I believed it to be love. A day later, he poured water over me and pressed my eyes into their sockets. He pummeled my cheeks and chin until I was nothing but a clot on a neck. I was left this way alone, sightless, feeling the light turn to dark and then to light again. I urged myself to remember where I was, the giant factory room with a peaked ceiling of wood and red tile. Dust sprinkled over me. Geckos scurried about, their tiny scaled feet scratching what, I, what was once my face. And then he returned with a woman. She laughed very loudly. He wetted me, pushing his hands back into me. Soon I had eyes once more. She had curly hair cut in a triangular shape and long earrings. Little lines like cracked clay surrounded her mouth. She called him Amour. He told her to take off her blouse, her bra. Stay still. You know you can take my picture and keep it next to you, Amour. It's not the same, you're alive. Not for long, you're boring me to death. Don't be a bitch for once. She straightened, reached for her clothing. I'm not here to be abused. He removed his hands from me and walked toward her. What are you here for then? She didn't reply. He set his palms still wet with remnants of me onto her waist, drawing her close. She glared but didn't fight. He put a hand to her chest, molding it with his fingers. She closed her eyes, wrapped her legs around his body. She had hands too and used them. How envious I was watching in the many mirrors, how effortlessly they moved and twisted a joint creation. On another day alone, he finished me. When he brought her face, when he brought her to face me, she didn't smile. My God, am I a monster to you? You don't understand what I'm trying to do. Embarrass me? I'm trying to make something different, not the sculptures we see in books. Something imperfect, alive, something elemental, a modern primitive. Don't ever tell anyone I posed for this. They fought, all their former arguments tame by comparison. He called her an old woman past her prime. She laughed. He was 45 too. He yelled that she knew nothing of art. She said he was a dilettante who had, made, who had done nothing but make one horrible statue. He hit her. She was quiet. On her lip, a crack bloomed red. She left. He looked at me a long time and then doused me with water. Once again, I was undone. Thank you. So good. Um, and Francis, I when you sent me this story, I, you, it was a very, <laughs> I came across the email again recently, 
there's a very brief note. You just said a friend had read this and found it spooky and strange. Um, so what it, what were the origins of this story and did it feel like a, a big break from your past work? Um, so the origin was, uh, I was in Brazil to, for my father's birthday in January, which feels like 20 years ago now, <laughs> it was just this January. Um, and mostly I spend it with my family on our farm. And then when we went back to the city, I went to this sculpture garden that I've been to ever since I was little. And it's always kind of, it's like a thrilling and really frightening place. Um, thrilling because I've never seen art like it. Like it's just so unique. And most art, you know, is, has a derivativeness to it. That's just the way that it is. But this is like nothing I've ever seen, but frightening because it's mostly women. And most of the women are, in some way bloody or dismembered or um, suffering um, or just a body part. And I, this, this particular visit, I thought, what if, what are they thinking? Like, what are these women thinking? And what would they say if they could speak about their creator and about themselves? And so I just kind of moved with that and I kept hearing all these different voices and I ultimately had to narrow down for the story, you know, which statues speak and which don't. Um, but my, my hope for it was that as the story progresses, um, you get more of the women of the statues and the women's voices and they become alive and less of their kind of creator. Um, and I don't know if it's, I think my short stories are um, a little bit stranger than my novels. My novels are a little more straightforward and I love kind of experimenting with short stories. So um, they're in the same vein as, as other stories that I've written, I think. I think I've always found that you have this very unique uh, uh, talent for like the multi-voiced stories. And so when I was reading this for the first time and I, you come through that first section and go to the next one and I realized it was going to work in this way. I had this sort of frisson of like, ooh, wow, <laughs> this is going to be amazing. Um, so thank you so much. Um, and we're going to move on to Patrick now. Um, Patrick, if I c recall correctly, I think um, George Saunders had referred me to Patrick's work like a decade ago. Um, and George, uh, I think George taught you, you were uh, uh, a protege at Syracuse. Is that right, Patrick? Yeah, I was at Syracuse. And he was a- 2007, yeah. Yeah, and, I and Patrick is someone, if anyone talks to George and George starts to rhapsodize about one of his students, Patrick is a name you will hear. Um, so then uh, Patrick, and I, I don't, know that he's ever uh, referred me to somebody else. So Patrick, I mean, is, uh, George thinks a lot of Patrick's work and I think you'll see as you read his work why. Um, so Patrick had sent me a story in right around then that it was for our fall 2011 issue called Lost Dog, um, which was in the Jeff McFetridge issue, um, it, which is uh, just a, an electrifying awesome. story and you should seek that out. Um, and uh, and, and this story is another, <laughs> uh, as you'll see. So uh, Patrick, can you give us a cut from your story in this issue, which is called, Oh Despot, My Despot? I can, and thanks so much for having me. Everybody can hear me clearly? Yes, all right, great. Uh, yeah, and that experience was amazing. 
But I, I do believe you rejected maybe about eight or nine stories before that one. Hey, we're trying it, to keep so. the mood happy here tonight, Patrick. <laughs> that is it's happy. warm. That it's all warm. For... Yeah, that's true. It's all no. warm. Feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> keep writing. Keep sending. You know. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm sure you'll kind of figure out the inspiration for this pretty quickly, although uh, it did take a fictional path that I was more happy with than the present state of uh, the country. So, oh, despot, my despot. I listen from my room below as my despot weeps in his above. Such torture. But what can I do for him? He does not respond well to leaving his comfort. Yet leave he must, or else be forced out, along with myself and the few loyal nationalists who remain in the great house, who keep guard in order. Though I suspect even these proud men and women will in short time dismiss their fidelity and make themselves subjects of documentaries, like so many before them, reclaiming their love of country in the face of our great despots fall from grace. In the morning, he will address the nation one last time. And it has been my job these past few months to prepare him for this address. This, he's been told, will be his best chance to revive his legacy, to prove that he is healthy and fit and leaving of his own volition. Oh, how did we get here, my despot? I ask in silence. Sometimes I do feel that our minds are one and we can hear the other without speaking. He would tell me that this is nonsense, but I perceive in his cries and his hacking coughs and midnight howls, a man who blames only himself. Wasn't it you, my despot, who once said long ago that we must be as vigilant as the earthworm so that when we are cut, we can regenerate still and dig and furrow and provide for our land? Yes, I grew up having misunderstood the true meaning of sacrifice, and I saw my parents give their lives away to ideas and thoughts and dreams. It took time for me to realize what it meant to be grateful. Many beatings and lectures, many sprints and cold showers. I was poor and flabby. You, my despot, made me rich and lean. Each night has been worse than the last. My despot can't sleep. I won't sleep, he cried. What terrible nightmares he has when he closes his eyes. Pieces of me began to fall off, Dalton. First my ears, then my nose, lips, arms, and nails. All that was left were my eyes so that I could see how terrifying I looked. I try to calm him by bringing him warm milk and singing a lullaby, but he won't repose. He drinks his milk and paces around the bedroom. I begin to doze and he wakes me with a kick to the gut. More milk, he demands. I can safely report that my despot's health is just fine, but he doesn't look healthy. We have attempted to address this with makeup under the eyes, yet my despot fusses and pushes away the stylist. Let them see, he shouts, let them see what it takes to run this country. But your appearance, sir, I say. Yes, what about it? I am a man of peace, Dalton. Any man of peace looks like they've been kicked 60 ways to Sunday. Gandhi, Gandhi Mandela, Jesus. So what if I'm beefy? Does that not mean I suffer? Oh, the level of hatred. Cause of such anxiety, such debilitating depression. Truly, my despot suffers to know there are those who want to see his eye sockets filled with maggots. They call me so many names, Dalton. They say I'm weak and my teeth are crooked and my head is full of mashed potatoes. Such indecency, sir. And blatantly inaccurate, Dalton. Feel my arms. No, not there, up higher. Hard as rock, sir. Nothing short of impressive. And look here, perfectly straight, sir. Not even an overbite. Shall I name every world leader in alphabetical order? What would be the point, sir? We have tried desperately to restore my despot to good physical shape. He has been on a strict diet of root vegetables and fish, but he cannot go a day without peanut butter cups. 
and without peanut butter cups, he's not very nice. As usual, though, my despot never ceases to amaze. Just last week, spurred by ridicule, he, he called for me to put on my jogging suit and come to his room. We must get fit, he cried. You're the boy for the job, Dalton. I need to build my glutes. In my heyday, I had such glorious glutes. I noticed that my despot was wearing shorts that must have dated from the era of those glorious glutes. Now, however, his backside was rather large and dimply. The mustard-colored fabric barely disguised his dingle, the middle seams splitting his crab apples. Did you know that I was once a very good athlete, Dalton? I was considered one of the fastest men on earth. I think I knew that, sir. You think? Where's your sense of history? You watched, Dalton. First, we performed knee bends, back bends, and light squats. Then I suggest that we jog through the great house. Do you know how many hallways there are, Dalton? That I don't, sir. They are endless. Yes, sir. My despot turned up our amble into a trot, taunting me by galloping backward and, and squealing. Then he began to sprint, his glutes bouncing mightily. A moment later, he was doubled over. Oh, something terrible has happened, he said. That night, I sat on a stool beside my despot as he soaked in the tub. The doctor had instructed him to spend 15 minutes in warm water and 15 minutes out and to keep doing so until his crab apples unwound. When the first 15 minutes were up, my despot called for his robe and I draped it over his shoulders. As he reached for his dingle, I reminded him of the doctor's orders. Let them unwind on their own, sir, I said. Yes, okay, he said. He soaked and stood, soaked and stood. Can you play an instrument, Dalton, he asked. I can blow on, I can blow on a harmonica fairly well, sir. I mean a real instrument, Dalton. No, sir, I don't have much of a knack for music. I haven't heard music in so long. I just remembered that. I wonder what happened. Sir, I said, looking down, they've unwound. So they, so they have, he said, and tied his robe. Much to look forward to, Dalton. Yes, sir. He walked through the doors to his bedroom. Sleep well, sir, I said. I held a moment, hoping he heard me. If this document ever becomes an historical record, Please don't think that I'm speaking badly about my despot's nature, or even with his balls tied in a knot, the strength and certainty of his eyes equip him with immeasurable powers. He has a handsome face with a sharp chin, and by the evening, when the stubble has grown back, he takes on the appearance of a rugged gentleman, adept at shooting clay pigeons. His very presence commands attention from the vilest visions in our nation. He walks in points, and where his eyes go, so do yours, and then back to his, as now he is looking at you the way he does from the banner straight along the crumbling buildings in the city center. Even half of his face covers a good deal of crumble. And then he is passing out of the once quiet room, leaving it in a state of confusion, unrest, and quickening instability. I've seen how people follow my despot as though in a trance, up to the barricades, to the great fleet of armored cars where he turns and waves, ushering them back into the wild. You cannot disremember that glorious day years ago when we stood at attention and listened, listened over the cause of crows and the laughter and screaming as his voice boomed through the loudspeakers, bolted to the trees in the green square. You cannot disremember the next day either and the sight of a man being dragged by his feet from the back of a chuck wagon through the same square now smattered with bird poop. Boy, how times have and have not changed. My despot closed each address with the same righteous sincerity. What more can I give to you than my heart, my soul, my life? And we stand there silently as though listening to a prayer. But now my despot seems to be increasingly unpopular with his people. What can I do, he exclaimed once. 
after we had watched the slanderous comedy skit on television that showed a much smaller and chubbier man using a bridge made up of his own constituents to cross a gator-infested tributary. They don't know the man I was before I was the man I am. What words, I thought. What humility. Dalton, are you aware that I'm an orphan? No, sir. Because I'm not. Still, I have great empathy for orphans. My parents never knew how to nurture me. But I miss them, Dalton. I miss summer. I miss the ocean. I miss the porch and seeing my trunks hang over the railing, dripping at the bottoms as they dried in the sun. I miss the smell of peaches. And by God, I've never even liked peaches all that much. What a world my memory is. What a muscle my mind. How long must we suffer in a spontaneous revolution? Sir, this is the raw stuff. This is what you need to share with the people. No, Dalton. Tell the people your private thoughts and they'll ache from hope. Oh, but he aches. He weeps for days past and days to come. He weeps sometimes without knowing why. Dalton, he cries, my poor eyes won't ever dry. Sir, my hands are full of used tissues. Kids are dying. Yes, and grown men and women too. Grown men and women and kids. Entire families, sir. So many tragedies, Dalton. How much empathy can one have? It's a great feat to summon all that empathy, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. I mean, when I read that story, you know, I've, we've read a, a fair bit of uh, sort of taking shots at, at some of uh, at sort of our our overbronzed malcontent in the White House. But um, th this take on this like this psychotic moment that we're in was just one of the most brilliant I'd read. And even as it's fiction. Um, and so I was curious, like, you know, how did you how did you think to kind of turn your gaze from kind of the easy target of, of this person um, to the enablers and the sycophants. And, and how did you like capture the, uh, the essence of, you know, the, our current despot while also render, rendering yours like wholly distinct? Well, I, I mean, I, I had that line for a long time, uh, probably about three years. Uh, I listened from my room below as my despot weeps and his above. So I, I like the idea of someone uh, just listening to him crying. And I, I don't know if it was the New York Times, or the New Yorker, they, they ran a story a few years ago about how he was like lonely in the White House. And I thought that was really funny because it's not really his house at all. And if he's lonely, it would be him being lonely from himself. And it was, it was really strange. It's that weird, strange, like double thing. And so, but to, to make it not too on the nose, I had to not really think of him. I had to think more of Dalton, of the, of the, the character who has put all his beliefs into this person and trusted that things will get better and is uh, is trying to ride it out in a way and also coming to terms with his own what 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 is the aftermath you know and so um, and then it was just scenes after that I was I I had a whole campaign thing it, the the story had grown to fifteen thousand words at one point and. <laughs> There were novelistic ideas, and I, I just kept coming back to the two these two characters together. And as the story goes about, he keeps trying to bring the desperate milk, and the milk keeps cooling each time he does it. And so it, it gives an excuse for them to talk and and reflect on how bad he's he's run the country. So yeah, and I mean uh, this this sort of tone. Yeah. yeah, sorry. I, I, the, no, I think just, the, they're yeah. It grew more into it, it grew more into a fictional world of my own that I could uh, that I could deal with because if you start taking in too much, um, it, it, it just becomes overwhelming and becomes uh, fake, you know, false to 
to fiction falls to the to my own storytelling so yeah, and I, I guess that, uh, I mean, the two things, I mean, the, the, the story is like just brilliantly written. It's just so sharp. Um, I think the relationship between the two of them is endlessly compelling and how it sort of tips into almost like a, there's so much feeling that it almost like tips into like a romantic love. Um, and I think that the, the, the psychology of, there's so much focus on this person in the center, but I mean, the psychology of the inner layer around him is uh, just so much more fascinating. Um, and I feel like this, this story took on something that is already becoming just like well-trodden ground at the point that like you're kind of seeking escape from it um, and reflects it in a way that uh, feels like totally new and in a way that you can kind of approach it and not feel like you're gonna sort of vomit. Uh, so thank you for that, Patrick, for doing that. <laughs> and thank you for uh, me. I appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. And I'm going to turn now to Daniel. And uh, while this is uh, Daniel's uh, first, the first time Daniel and I have worked together, um, our relationship actually goes back the longest of everyone here, at least in spirit. Um, as I'd mentioned to Daniel, when I was first interviewing for this job, which was back in the spring of 2002, I spent my first interview talking at length about a completely eviscerating story of Daniel's that appeared in the magazine the previous fall that was called I Run Every Day. Um, it was in, our, in the fall 2001 issue, so it was before I joined the magazine, um, and it was later in his collection, Orientation and Other Stories, which is, you should get, like, order it tonight. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, and so when I got the job 18 and a half years ago, I commenced my pursuit of Daniel for another story. Uh, there was one, Shakers, uh, which I, I, like a decade ago, which I think that, um, I think I'd sent a contract on it. And it was like, Daniel's like, you know, he'd agreed to get, let it go somewhere else like two hours earlier. It's about an earthquake. It's, it's also in that collection. Um, so it just, I, you know, it, and so when Daniel wrote me with this story in, in May, uh, he, you know, he's like, well, take your time with this one. Um, and so it only took, I guess, just shy of 20 years for, for Daniel to reciprocate my interest. So here we are two decades later, Daniel. Um, and let's not let another 20 pass before we do this again, please. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Daniel's story is the final story in the issue. It's called Leave No Trace. And can you bring us home with that one, Daniel? Yeah, sure. Um, and Michael, I, I just want to thank you for um, contacting me once a year for about 15 years to ask me if I had anything. I finally did. And I'm real pleased. Um, this story's in three parts. Uh, I'm going to read all of the first part, and then we're just going to barely dip into part two. Okay. <clears throat> Leave no trace. One. When he was six years old, little Rutger's mother was killed by an exceptionally rare and virulent spinal cancer and his father, a benign and devoted alcoholic who embraced the memory of her ghastly suffering to the exclusion of everything and everyone else until he himself died a half decade later, took his only child aside the day after they had buried her and told him this, 
Everything goes, little buddy. Your mother is gone. I'll be gone someday, and you'll be gone too. Life is a slog, one cold, dark, slippery, uphill slog. There'll be a crack of light or two to see your way. That's called hope. And a handhold here and a toehold there, that's mercy. But the light, that'll wink out, and you'll be in the dark again. And the holds, they'll crumble, and down you go. So crush hope. Let hope die. And mercy, well, don't quit your day job. And what about love? I loved your mother. You loved her too. We watched her suffer and die and boom. She's feeding the worms now and we're alone. Love is pain, little buddy. So harden your heart. Take that precious meaty beady little muscle of yours and turn it into a fist of stone. Everything goes. When I go, the only mark I'll leave is in here. Little Rutger's father touched his son's head, surmising the traces of his mark inside with gentle fingertips. And when you go, that's all she wrote. No memory of me left at all. Boom. So keep your head down. Sit in the back row and don't raise your hand. Play dumb. Avoid the spotlight. Don't make a fuss. Bring a book and just wait in line. Don't answer the door. Don't order the special. Don't travel. Don't ask her out. Don't color outside the lines. Expect nothing. Don't reach. Don't strive. Don't try. Just be. Be invisible. Be smoke. Be a ghost. Leave no trace. And so little Rutger didn't, or at least he didn't mean to. Two. <clears throat> Rutger is 11 years old, sent to Uncle Willie and Aunt Midge, already in their late 60s and active retirees, early risers, weekly players of tennis and four-handed bridge and trepid solvers of thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles, hardy day hikers and trusty community volunteers and avid gardeners of tomatoes and beets and kale. They are always doing things, shoulders to wheels, noses to grindstones and all that. What do you like to do? They ask the boy. He shrugs and says, everything. And he does do everything. He gets a paper route, babysits for several families in their church, plays junior league soccer, picks up litter from playgrounds and highway medians with his Boy Scout troop. He takes on household and gardening tasks as Uncle Willie's eyes and Aunt Mitch's joints incrementally deteriorate. They teach him how to ride a bike, fly a kite, tread water, bake bread, fold hospital corners, rewire a lamp. He learns to sew on a button, use a compass, measure twice and cut once, read a night sky, bone a chicken, even play bridge, sometimes sitting in as an emergency fourth. He is adequate at everything he does. The papers are mostly delivered on time and the ball usually moved downfield. The babysat children are safe, though bored, the buttons sewn on secure, but crooked, the merit badges earned if just barely. He always loses at bridge, yet sometimes respectably so. He approaches every new and untried thing dubiously as if it were primed with explosives. 
Only bread making alters this effect, affect, the steps of a recipe imbuing him with a semblance of confidence. Bewildered by this nephew out of the blue, Uncle Willie and Aunt Midge are, though well-intentioned and devoted, intensely awkward caretakers. They pat him on the back or tousle his hair and tell him that he's a good boy. You're a good boy, Rutger. Aside from these clumsy tendernesses, nothing is amiss in the home of Uncle Willie and Aunt Midge, bought decades ago in a now upscale peninsula community with a robust tax base and well-funded schools teeming with solicitous teachers and counselors perpetually after Rutger about his passion. What is your passion, Rutger? What are you interested in? He shrugs and says, nothing, which is not entirely true, but the investment in his success from Mrs. Hines and Mr. Cockrell and all the others torments him until he finds respite with Mr. Rosa, who teaches geometry and algebra trig and is serenely indifferent to his students' passions. While Rutger enjoys the methodical process of solving for X or proving the congruence of angles A and B, his X is often wrong and the logic of his proofs easily unraveled. Mr. Rosa gives him C's and D's, and by the end of his first year of high school, Rutger, to his great relief, is officially pegged an underachiever and off-the-hook investment and success-wise. He avoids the locker room bullies and the cafeteria cliques by allying with the theater students, and now identified and dismissed as a theater fag, is mostly left alone. He works in the fly loft, climbing ladders and traversing catwalks, belaying and tying off ropes that move light rigs up and down and swing sceneries in and out. For three years, he watches on the stage below a girl named Nina, willing her to look up. She is Ado Annie in Oklahoma and Emily in our town. She is Nurse Kelly in Harvey and Lotus Blossom in the tea house of the August moon. After high school, Uncle Willie asks, what now, Rutger? And I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this, that, this is like a, that's like a first chapter of a, of a novel in terms of um, the emotional content of the story. And I do find this story so affecting in this moment. I mean, it's earnest plea that even in isolation, each one of us matters. Um, we're each tied to one another. We each leave a legacy. Um, it's just so epic. I mean, where did this, where did this start? Um, I had always wanted to see if I could, this is like decades ago. I'd always wanted to see if I could test the limits of brevity and, um, write a complete life in like 10 pages. Um, I, I just always wanted to do that from birth to death. Um, and then I kind of left that aside, uh, that set that aside and then a couple of years ago, I started reading uh, A Simple Heart by um, Flaubert. And for some reason, that story triggered me wanting to do this again, uh, to tell a life much like, uh, what's her name? I forget her name, where, where she is uh, on the sidelines and all opportunity kind of passes her by. And... Um, so I wanted to do that. I wanted to tell a story about somebody who doesn't matter. And then this whole thing about memory comes up and takes over the story. 
And to be honest, I, I don't remember when, when that came up. I don't remember when I, I, I thought about doing that or, or how I made the decision to do that, but um, I did. And after this character um, dies, um, it's not a spoiler. After he dies, part three is just how, how everybody remembers him. And uh, without giving any spoilers, but um, I mean, the, the final moment is, uh, is just uh, dazzling. Um, when you, without mentioning what happens, um, when you came upon that as sort of a last line, did that feel sort of dazzling in that moment when you conceived of it? I'm guessing yes. When I came, when I found, I found that, that whole, the situation that arises that ends the story, um, I came across it in the New York Times about a year ago. Oh, wow. And I just went, whoa. Yeah. How can I not use that? So, yeah, yeah, that was one of those. That was one of those uh, rare cliched moments where um, uh, inspiration hits and it goes uh, boom, you know. And it's 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 rarely like that. Inspiration. That's that's a cliche, but uh, but that actually happened with with that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that felt it was like a, a perfectly clean landing to a very difficult trick. Is <laughs> going through. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it was incredible. Um, so, uh, to all the millions of folks out there, I think uh, what you may not realize, given their respective histories that I've outlined um, for each of these writers, which is is which I guess the shortest is about a decade, um, is that this is the very first time, like tonight, that any of us have ever spoken. Um, we've never met priorly. We've never talked on the phone. Um, throughout all those years and decades and stories. Um, and I think to some extent that's a function of, of the magazine's location on the West Coast. Uh, we're not really at the center of sort of the, the culture of industry of, of writing. Um, and, you know, so our, our entire relationships have been conducted via email. And yet, I mean, I think through each of your work, um, going through the process of edits, seeing how you develop ideas and you solve problems, I feel like I very much know you. Um, I think, I mean, Francis and I are on each other's uh, holiday gift card lists. <laughs> so I look forward to seeing her lovely family every year. Um, and so it, as we we're thinking about this, I mean, I, I feel like this, this sort of our mode of collaboration in a way kind of um, presages this current mode of uh, creative production in, in COVID. I mean, this necessary cooperation from very um, distributed locations, uh, these sort of emotional and human connections that you make uh, but being conducted remotely. Um, and so I just wanted to talk a bit through that process with you all um, and, and kind of the development of these stories. I mean, and I'm gonna just sort of open it up to the three of you, but um, you know, these stories begin in isolation, each in a room, um, you send the story to me, we begin this kind of you know, mutual rally um, and so what's that experience like for you? Uh, you know, going, having this thing that is all yours, um, sending it to somebody else and, and having someone else's, sort of metaphorically letting somebody else into that room, um, kind of opening up space for somebody else. I mean, uh, like once, the, once this very private thing becomes a shared thing. 
any of I mean, I was just going to open it up to all three. I thought you guys were all going to start talking <laughs> over each other. Yeah. I mean, because I think uh, a lot about like, you know, how we, um, I think what's so important about a relationship between an editor and a writer is, is trust and um, how we're able to develop trust and kind of come back to work together again and again um, without ever meeting one another without ever having like those normal ways that like you know you go out for a drink with somebody well M michael I can, I can jump in i i uh it's always been that way for me i mean i've i've um before i moved from san francisco i mean i i've uh, uh, i mean after i moved from san francisco i moved to a small town in northern idaho i've been here for um 18 years so um just about every relationship I've had editing a story has been uh, the way that, that we've done it. I don't think I've ever gone out for drinks um, <laughs> with an editor. Um, and, Next uh, time I'm in Moscow, it's happening. You'll, you'll be the first. Yeah. Um, but I mean, for me, it, it, the whole notion of, of being in isolation, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, COVID is, is kind of everybody doing what I've been doing for for, for quite a while so just scrivening out these stories so it isn't it isn't it isn't that odd for me it isn't that odd to find a I think a, a, a great level of 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 trust uh in somebody uh whose voice you've never heard I mean that that's happened to me a couple of times so yeah somebody, yeah oh, go ahead Patrick but yeah, for me, I, I just felt like there, there's a writer who passed away recently, uh, Lee K. Abbott, and I remember mm -hmm. him saying, uh, he, he, it was like a lecture he was giving, and he said, have any of you wanted to cut off your arm, have any of you read a story that you'd cut your own arm off to write? And I was like, man, that is so intense, you know? And then I asked him, like, later, what he thought, what he meant about that, and he's like, well, you know, every time I write a story where a piece of me feels like it's gone, then it's gone. And that's what you, that's what a real story is. And so the times that I felt like I wrote that story, I sent them to Michael, uh, so he can, uh, you know, if he, and, and he's got a great way of feeling where you're coming from. And that's gotta be so hard for an editor when so many different voices are coming at you at the same time. So it's almost a question for you. Like, how do you handle all those different voices and feel like you're a part of, um, that writer like you can understand where that writer is going and what they're trying to accomplish and also enjoy it you know because all these all three of these stories are all different and they're all really enjoyable like this is this is a magazine but it, it feels like a book i would buy i mean they're all so intense and uh big stories so um it's a real accomplishment yeah i mean i think for me it's a response to to what's in the story i mean i think i am just a close reader um and i i think what i'm always looking for are stories that um can kind of uh like they're so immersive that they can skip the mediation of the intellect and kind of affect me um, as a reader, and I think other readers emotionally, um, before I can even sort of logic out why. And I think that, that film can do that because it has sort of so many tools to, with which to work and music can do it. Um, there's something about literature where it's, 
it's such a logical exercise of interpreting, you know, interpreting shapes into letters, uh, uh, connecting them into words, into sentences, that there's so much sort of logic happening and putting together and reasoning through that when something can make you feel something before you're even ready to feel it. Um, and, and if somebody stopped you and said, why do you feel that way? And you couldn't say why, like that to me is a really incredible story. Um, and I think to create, it's, it's like something that's so immersive that you forget your reading. Um, and I always think of it sort of like it, you sort of transcend the imposition of the page. Um, and I think writers that really, the stories that really work, it's writers that focus not on the relationship between the writer and the work, but the reader and the work and really trying to develop that. I think I, I you know, talk about these things like leading, leaving room for the reader to participate in the understanding of the story, um, the ways that you can uh, catalyze rather than describing an emotion, um, that you can sort of de describe a character, put that character in a certain situation. And I know that character well enough to know the emotional distress that's on that person. And so in a way, like uh, as a reader, I sort of empathetically fill that in. And I do that by drawing up my own emotions and the stories become so much richer to, you know, and in a way it's like, it's not your story because you wrote it. It's my story when I'm reading it. Um, and I think that's why, I mean, I think, you know, and you guys working with me, I can, um, I think be a little, uh, I don't know what the word, sort of exacting even about things like, you know, a period here or whatever. And it's because once you create that fugue state in a story, like I never want to break it. And, and if there's like one misspelling or if there's anything that reminds you that you're reading, um, it's like trying to create that state and then suspend that state. And any little sort of infelicity can just remind somebody like, huh, like why is, you know, why, why is that word capitalized after a colon or something? And you just to, to, to kind of break all that away. That's kind of the stuff that I love. Um, and I do, and I feel like I, you know, I read that. I think that the stuff that stands out, I mean, I, I still remember, um, Francis, when you sent uh, The Disappearance of Luisa Porto, so that was 15 years ago, um, which is a story about this um, girl, this young girl from a well-to-do family who disappears. And um, it was, I mean, reading that the first time, it just, it feels, it felt very um, emotional. I mean, is that something like, Francis, when you're working, are you thinking uh, can you, are you thinking about it in that way, like almost approaching your own work as a reader, like thinking about like leaving that room for somebody to sort of like come into the story and, and have like personal reactions to it? Um, well, first, I just want to say about the, the isolation piece, something that Daniel said where you, Michael, kind of check in and say, you know, do you have anything? And I appreciate that so much because even though I don't have something, it's like, well, somebody cares, <laughs> you know, like Michael, who I deeply respect and feel like is the best editor ever. Like he cares enough to take me out of that isolation and say like, I would like to read what you're, what you're working on. And that is just like a rope for me uh, many times. It has just been a rope out of kind of that deep isolation. So I really appreciate that. And, and that aspect of our relationship, um, but in terms of, um, I feel like every story teaches me what it needs. And so I, I try to go into it and dis I wanna disappear as the writer and I don't wanna pirouette and I don't wanna do things that don't serve the story um, in terms of language or plot. And um, 
most stories take me a really long time to write. I think because of that, because of I need to take my own self and ego out of it and really focus on the characters. And that's kind of what I hear first are these kind of um, the voices of the specific people that I'm writing about. And then I kind of find an entryway in. Um, and then I just really deeply hope that because I'm connecting so much in that character's point of view that the reader will also connect and it'll be a relationship between them and I'm completely out of the picture. And that is always my hope. And I'm curious too, I mean, not to get too sort of process oriented, but um, you know, you and I now have worked on four stories together. Um, I mean, I kind of know how I work. I don't, I mean, you know, uh, which I think can be somewhat intense sometimes. Um, how, like when you're working through edits, like how do you know, cause you, I mean, as, as much, you, all three of you, I think what's really distinguished uh, sort of, I don't know, the sort of like special about your work is you occupy kind of every sentence of it. Um, so when you're receiving edits from somebody, like how do you, how do you sort of negotiate that process? How do you know, like you kind of take what's good, discard what's not so good, but maybe take a lesson about it that something needs to be fixed while always sort of maintaining your sense of like where you want the story to go. Because I think that's difficult for a lot of like emerging writers. Like how do you take, like someone's gonna read the thing and like how do you, how do you take that advice and make the story um, better, but it, that it's still yours? I mean, for um, me, I just, oh, sorry. Francis, no, go ahead, ask. Patrick. No, no, that's okay. I, I, I just, um, uh, uh, I read and revise my own stuff so much that when I do send it to an editor and, uh, and like Michael, and he comes back with some, with a bunch of edits, I'm like, how did he find these things? Like, how did he find these things? <laughs> And uh, I'm always amazed that he, that, cause I spend so much time revising and, and obsessing about each line. And, uh, and then I'm always surprised that, that, that someone can see, you know, a step ahead or something like that. And that the section that I read, you know, just for some insight into this, the edit of this story was that it's funny to have an editor and you write a piece about, you know, a, a despot's crab apples and so I was I wrote that and he and he had like he had made it so that you didn't exactly know that he wound his balls up while he was jogging you find that out a beat later and before you had found that out right away and I was like and that was so for the whole thing was so funny to me that 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 is something that we're going back and forth uh on is an edit like that where let's leave and I think the line I think he, Michael put in the line let's lead to leave some mystery up to the reader <laughs> about this guy's balls. So, uh, you know, something like that is, uh, is fun, but it also shows you the level of, if you're trying to do something comedic too, which I think is really hard to do, uh, balance the comedy and the, the dark and the light, uh, you, re you really need a strong reader that understands that, that that's what you're trying to do. And so um, that was really great with Michael. So. Um, I think so much of it is about trust and like trusting um, the person that you're working with, obviously. And so, I mean, with Michael, whenever you send me edits, I, I truly trust that you are understanding where I'm trying to go with the story and, and 
really respecting that and are a partner in helping it get better. And so I feel this great sense of relief when I send you things because I'm just like, it's going to get so much better now. Um, and, but I think ultimately that takes, it's a relationship that takes time to build and, um, uh, and also knowing your own work enough and knowing kind of what, how you want a story to transform, how much are the edits going to transform it and, and where do you need it to go? Um, and that's just understanding yourself as a writer and, and the story itself. Yeah, I mean, I always, uh, I, uh, go ahead, Daniel, sorry. No, I was just gonna say that, that the, I, I knew that we clicked because I love catalogs. I love lists and things of things and attributes. And I love the pileup of just all kinds of bits and pieces of the world in a story. I love doing it again and again. You love catalogs too, but, but you love shorter ones. <laughs> but you still love them. So um, um, that's, that's what that was telling. Yeah, I feel like um, a lot of times uh, as in, and I guess this is sort of top of mind because I was just doing a class last week and the, this question always comes up about like, you know, I send my work out to people and I get feedback and then I just think like, what do I, like, do I take everything kind of, what do I do? And I always feel like the stuff that as a writer, you know your work better than anyone else. And like the, the stuff that you, that the editor points out that you kind of already knew is the worthwhile stuff. Like the stuff that, you know, you're, there's a lot of parts you're kind of papering over a corner. You're kind of, <laughs> it's a little loose paint in this, in this, in this aspect. Um, but the stuff that like really resonates and you just think like, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of knew that and I just needed somebody to tell me that, you know, the 30th time that I tried to rework this isn't quite working. Um, I always feel like in my own stuff, that's the, those are the things to take. Um, but to always remember that, you know, you, you, you've the one, you're the one who's lived with the story the most, you know what you want to do. And uh, when somebody's taking a story, it's because of what's there. Um, and to, you know, to hold fast to, to, to where you were, where you were going to take it. Um, and I want to open up uh, the, the, uh, I don't know exactly how to manage this, Peter, but if we could open up for, for questions for people. Yeah. Um, if anybody's out well, there has questions. Peter wants to ask, you know, if you go down to your dashboard, you can use the chat function. And uh, incidentally, that's where you can also um, find the links to uh, uh, buy the issue, but also you can subscribe to Zoetrope. So keep that in mind, folks. So, uh, there we go. There's a question from Neil. Michael, now that you've published one of Daniel's stories, what other writers are you hoping to finally publish in Zoetrope for the first time? Huh, that's a good question. Um, who are some people? I mean, I, I feel like um, who's someone that I'm trying to publish right now? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I think that, you know, we get so many submissions um, and uh, I, I feel like the people I want to publish, I don't, I don't, you know, I, this is going to seem like a cop out, but it's, it's, it's true. I don't know their work yet. Um, 
I think a lot of the people that like, if I could make a list of people I've wanted to work with, I've, I've sort of worked with them. Um, I mean, I would like, I could say like, you know, I think Patrick would kick, like, I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like George. Uh, George Saunders is someone who I respect incredibly. Um, I've been with him. He taught a, uh, he taught a workshop. We used to lead a writing workshop in Belize every year and George would come down one time. And at the time he was, um, he'd just written a piece for like GQ on Dubai. Do you remember this piece, Patrick? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. it was like in 2000, it was the Katrina year. Yeah. Right. Um, and so what had really impressed me about George was that, I don't know if any of you guys saw this piece. I think it was in GQ and it was basically George wandering around, around Dubai and in his sort of blue collar work ethic, he took offense at the fact that tourists, he was staying at like the barge and he took offense at the fact that tourists were, uh, had to pay to come visit the barge. And so he was in the lobby and he met this couple from somewhere in the UK and they were there on their honeymoon, I think, or anniversary. And so he invited them up to his room, which he wasn't supposed to do. And he like gave them the, the robes and like everything, like whatever was not nailed down in the suite he gave to them. And then he was just like charging it all to GQ. And, um, so he'd written this thing and, and we're in Belize and it's, it's the year of Katrina. And, and I don't remember if you guys remember that year, there was also a storm that came through Houston. There was just a lot of chaos. There were storms coming through. Reception was terrible. And there was this fact checker at GQ that was uh, tracking George down, asking him if he could get a contact for, the, for this couple so he could call them and like confirm certain aspects of the story. And I imagine like, you know, it's kind of like an overeager 23 year old or whatever. And I kept saying to George at the time, like, just like the hoops that you're jumping through for this, like are not worth it. Like, just tell this guy, like, talk to your editor and tell this guy to stand down. And he's such a sincere guy and so dedicated to what he was doing and never would. And I always found it really sweet. And I always wanted to work with him. But I also kind of feel like, you know, George is, I don't know, like, you, if you want to find George's work, you can find George's work. Um, he did. uh and I, I think I'm sort of going on a tangent here, but uh, on the subject of editing, there was something fascinating. If you guys ever get to do take a class with George, you should. Um, he, uh, we talked quite a bit about editing. Um, he talked about, he may have told this story in your class, Daniel, about um, when, I think it was his first story that he published in the New Yorker, which was in the late 80s. And it was when uh, Bill Buford was there. And so uh, Bill sent him edits and Bill's edits were uh, cut 12 lines. And so then George is like, this is a bizarre directive, like, but okay, I'll cut 12 lines. And he was assuming it had something to do with the copy fitting. And so he's like, oh yeah, those are probably good two, like 12 good lines to cut. And he sent it back to Bill. And then Bill sends it back to him and said, um, you know, cut 14 lines. And so then George is like, this is, this just seems so arbitrary, but like, and so uninspiring, but fine, I'll cut 14 lines. So he cuts 14 lines. This goes on and on. And George is getting more and more frustrated, but feeling like the story is getting better and better. And so finally he said to Bill, he's like, I need something from you. Like, I need, why did you buy this? Like, it just like, it, I just, this feels like this ridiculous process. And Bill's response was, uh, I read the first, sentence and I liked it and I read the second one and I liked it and I read the third one and then before I found a sentence I didn't like the story was over and uh it's just 
he has a great way of demystifying the aspect, the, the act of writing, um, and the sort of the sense of wandering in the woods, which he takes a very kind of like, I don't know, like a plumbing approach to like a, a blue collar approach of like, there's a certain way that these things work. And so I guess I've always wanted to kind of work with him in some way, but again, like he's somebody you can find anywhere. Um, and I think that what's exciting for me is just that I'm sort of getting work all the time and having the experience of like reading Patrick's story, Lost Dog, or, you know, reading I Run Every Day or reading The Disappearance of Louisa Porto and, and just reading something that is unlike anything else I've read. And it is just, it's like that sense that there's still surprise in the world. Like when somebody turns you on to like in a, a, like a, a, a movie, like if you've never seen Kelly Records films or someone turns you on to a band and you hear the first record, you're like, oh my gosh, the fact that this like richness has always been out there and I'm just discovering it now. And I, there's so much to discover. Like that's what's so exciting to me. So like when these stories come across the transom, it's just, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's thrilling. So I think Neil, like the next one of those that happens, that's, that's the person I want to publish. That was the end of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> See, I have, if a, there was an answer in there. I have a question from, um, Jennifer. Is it a challenge to create cohesion between the substance of the stories and the guest editor's creative vision? You want to feel that one, Modula? Sure, yeah. Um, the way we work is generally I sort of um, am working on the design with the guest designer while Michael's editing the stories at the same time. Um, I will actually say it's not a, ch it's surprisingly not challenging. <laughs> um, we really view um, the guest design and the artwork as being sort of its own narrative. One thing we're always very clear with when we invite these amazing artists to design is, you know, we're not asking you to illustrate these stories. The artwork is not an illustration of what's happening on the text pages. Um, rather, we view it as its sort of own narrative that provides different beats and rhythms throughout the whole book of the magazine. Um, and for that reason, I think, you know, and I should add that some, some of the guest designers um, are really interested in how the images match with the stories or don't match and some could care less. Um, so it's always a fun thing to sort of learn who, who is into that and who is not into that. And there's no wrong or right. Um, it's just, you know, how people prefer to work and what their artistic process is like. And for a lot of our guest designers, you know, they're not graphic designers, they're artists in other uh, realms. So it's a new process for them as well to sort of figure out how to design a magazine made of paper, pictures and words. Um, I think, um, I will say that like, you know, there is a process at some point in the layout process, there is sometimes a slight bit of finessing or pushing that the guest designer will do um, or that I'll notice where we'll be like, you know, ooh, if this story, if this image followed that story, there would be like a nice sort of punctuation there, you know, there's a resonance. Um, but I, you know, I find it always really amazing to work with guest designers and see how the images resonate against the text as a surprise. Um, you know, whenever you pair images with narrative, new things come up. And I think that's actually one of the really exciting things about the guest design is it lends this whole other sort of dimension to the fiction. Yeah, and I think what's what's really exciting about like 
I, what's sort of endlessly interesting about the magazine for us is um, the way that you just bring, you can kind of approach anybody. Um, I mean, from the design side, you know, musicians, filmmakers, uh, anybody. And uh, from the, uh, with, with writers, kind of anyone that we want to work with, and you just sort of see how people solve problems, um, which is always really exciting. Um, and, and see how people think about things. Like, uh, I mean, I was just thinking as, as a recent example um, and maybe somewhat of a pedestrian example, but it was revelatory to me that there was a, with our summer issue, which the musician Kate LeBond designed, and there was uh, Rebecca Miller had a story in the issue. And there was like this image that was just like, it distilled the story. Like there was, it was just, it was like, there was just like this perfect kind of aesthetic manifestation of just like the sensibility and the feeling behind the story. And um, I was very keen on this image As and Nandil had, su had suggested it. And Kate had said like, it's just too, like it's, it, there's, there was like, she wanted something that felt like a little more angular. And it was just, so it was, it was just sort of an interesting thing. Like, yeah, that's, you know, like, where I was looking for a certain kind of synchronicity, she is too, but it's just a different kind, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and at the time she explicitly used the word weird, which is kind of, yeah. you know her, you know, appropriate for some of her visual aesthetic as a musician and auditory aesthetic. Um, and she, she said, you know, every sort of image in the magazine and every juxtaposition of images in the magazine um, is a little bit, off and a little bit weird or angular, as Michael said, I think is a nice way to say it, um, except this one that like perfectly illustrates and introduces this one story. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, we didn't use the uh, sort of apt image. We used the image she wanted to use, which I think sort of drew, a, it added a depth, a level of darkness to the story that I think was actually really interesting. And, and if I can tell uh, on the subject of, uh... Uh, musicians from Wales um, who designed the magazine. I'll, if I can tell a quick anecdote about it, just a, a really sort of a fun design experience. Um, this was back in uh, 2009, I think. And um, the musician PJ Harvey was, uh, she, she was turning 40. And I'd, so I'd read an interview, and this sort of, this will just sort of give a, a sort of life cycle of a design process. So I'd read an interview um, and she was asked if she had any regrets. And she said that her one regret was that she'd given up her art practice. So she'd gone to her visual art practice. She'd gone to art school studying uh, sculpture and, and drawing. She was playing in bands at the time. Um, touring took over and it just was inconvenient. And she just stopped making visual art. And so I read, and then this is kind of how these things will start. It's like, wow, that's sort of interesting. Like, I love PJ Harvey, like what would she make? And so then like scouring the internet, trying to figure out like, is there any, can we find evidence of anything she's ever made? And we couldn't. And so I'd kind of talked to some different friends and found a friend who knew her, um, who could advance a, an invitation. And so I'd, I'd written her, she did not at the time, so this was 2009, 2010, she did not have email. Um, she would, she had a fax machine. And so you would like write note, you would fax her letters. And um, so she, uh, so what I'd said to her was like, you know, I'm, I don't know what you do, but um, what, what I can offer you is like a deadline to make work and a forum for the work when it's done. 
so and she just made the record white white chalk which i really love so she uh she agreed readily i never thought i didn't think she would um and so we we were do, we were working on the issue and and the 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 work that she made is incredible it's like these really beautiful drawings incredible draftsmanship and um so as she was making she made we put out the issue um Immediately, she was contacted by galleries in London, Paris, New York. Um, she put on shows and she became a practice. She got representation, became a practicing visual artist again. And, and at the time, she was recording the record Let England Shake. And she's talked a lot about in interviews about um, she was making the putting together the issue, making the record, making artwork was pulling her back to this like time in her life in her twenties when she was very political. Um, it, it really, each process like was feeding the other one. And so then the record came out and, you know, it won the Mercury prize. And it was just like this really fun, like, I don't know, like this wonderful, like ripple from this little pond, like pebble that you throw into a pond, just reading this interview. And then, and the other thing that's really inspiring like with that is that we're this relatively small magazine and like it's not it doesn't sort of redound to PJ Harvey's fame to like do this magazine but it was just like she was excited like even at this point in her life like she's just she was excited about the, an opportunity to do something creative um, to challenge herself to take something on that felt like a little bit scary and um, it's for us it's just like really rewarding to be part of that process um and i think that that's that's sort of uh i mean that's why i've been here for 18 and a half years um and do we have other questions out there i don't want to keep everybody on my i'm also in my kid this is the the room that my kids are going to sleep in <laughs> so i'm gonna have to give it up to them soon you know i i think we are so blessed to be at the nexus of literary arts of music of film i mean both city lights and zoetrope and and you know tonight has been such a pleasure just you know hearing these wonderful readings and then but also hearing about how you do this and i just love it and you know i just want to thank you again you know neighbor uh, oh yeah yeah no i think that fun. peter and peter and i uh so we we work like a block apart and uh, I always think back on this, and I've actually thought back on this during the COVID time, Peter, running into you and you're like putting together like the, the Peter does this Dada Festival in San Francisco. And we were talking right outside of Mr. Bing's. And we were talking about how you encounter so many people in your life, like via email, but that um, Peter and I, like we would just bump into each other, ran like physically, randomly, frequently. And how that was just such a pleasant part of being in North Beach in San Francisco. Um, when I think about San Francisco and all that's happening there, I think that, you know, my, one of my first sentimental thoughts is like walking by city lights when I'm going up to meet somebody for a drink at Vesuvio and looking in the window and seeing Peter and Paul in the, the balcony above the reading room and, you know, stopping in to say hi. So, um, yeah, I mean, we have such warm feelings for you guys and please do, I mean, city lights is such an institution. Um, and it's, it's difficult for so many literary, um, I think City Lights, I think is one that people kind of take for granted and they feel like it's always been here and it always will be here. Um, these organizations cannot survive, especially now without people's support. So please go to see, you know, go to City Lights, order things, buy things. It's such an important place 
for I think like the national cultural identity. And then just on a very real level, I mean, when you go to City Lights, like Peter, you've been there for how long? How many years? Long enough to know better. <laughs> I mean, my favorite story. That, so, sorry, go ahead. Twenty-six years. Twenty-six years. Peter's been there. My favorite. Uh, one of my favorite stories about City Lights is the fact that uh, Paul Yamazaki uh, has been there since 1970s, coming up on his 50-year anniversary, and he uh, got a job the day he there, the day he got out of jail because he needed a job, like something to do with his release or something like that, and. Like Lawrence brought him in and he's the, I mean, like these guys are institutions. I mean, I think it's funny that like Stacey Lewis, when she was having her like 20th anniversary there or something, and she was like the young kid on the block. I mean, you guys have all been there forever. Um, so please do, please support, um, please support City Lights. Um, and I just want to say uh, before we go that we do have um, a, we're offering a, a, a discount code, stay home, one word, a discount of 15% off any subscription if you go to the website. Um, the magazine sells out quickly. If you want to get it, I would order it. Um, I think we, like, we don't have tons once we ship them out to subscribers, so definitely order it. Um, if in this spirit of coming together, you can always order a few extra if you like, send them to your friends, enemies, exes, never wases. Come by the store. Um, plenty at the yeah, store. Go, yeah, yeah, go to the store. So, um, but thank you so much. And I, and I want to thank um, Francis, Patrick, and Daniel. Um, Mondal and I have talked about this. I've talked to my wife about it. That this, I, get, I think in this difficult time, this issue is really special um, in not only for the work, but just because you guys, like every interaction with the three of you was just so pleasant and booing to me. Um, I, I, I mean, I love all three of you. I, I loved every, every back and forth. Um, and, uh, and, and Kelly too was just so fabulous. So it was just like this, it's like this, this issue, I mean, it's yellow. It is sort of like in a dark time, like this battery of warm feelings. So, um, I hope everybody kind of experiences that too, as they read it. So thank you all three of you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. It's Thank so great to, to meet all of you virtually. Yes. <laughs> yes. And on the other side of this ridiculousness, we're all getting together. Yes. Uh, yeah. In Moscow, Idaho. We're coming there, Daniel. No, no, I'll, I'll come there. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Be safe. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Hope to see you all soon. Take care. Nice to meet you all. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.